Oh, Justin. Okay, thank you. So, so we'll give the, the Avon traffic some, at this time in the morning with school buses is sometimes a, a challenge getting here on time. But it's my great pleasure. This is our second uh, research day. Uh, some of you maybe remember the first, but uh, in my view, I just want to say that research begins, academic careers involving research begin at a relatively early stage. There, people get the bug at uh, oftentimes either in college or medical school residency at, at the stages that we, many of you are at. Our job as faculty is to help instill that bug and to nurture it. Uh, I think we put in place a very strong program in order to do it, and we're always thinking of ways to make it stronger. Uh, obviously, the substrate is are the trainees, and we know we've got great substrate. So it's really exciting to see how this is all coming together. And we not only have very strong research uh, presentations and, and posters, but it's, it's what I was struck by when I went over the abstracts is the diversity. We cover a tremendous amount of ground, and we have excellence in many different areas, and I think that will be clear. So with that as a prelude, uh, I'd like to introduce our first speaker, Dr. Victoria Grossi, hopefully I pronounced her name correctly, uh, and her, her talk is titled P P2RX3 Gene Expression is Associated with Pain Burden in Children Newly Diagnosed with Inflammatory Bowel Disease. Victoria? Oh, there she is. Okay. Thank you. everyone. Um, my name is Victoria Grassi. I'm a third-year pediatric gastroenterology fellow here at Connecticut Children's. And I thank you for allowing me to present some preliminary re um, results for my fellowship research project. So abdominal pain and IBD. So at diagnosis, we see about 50 to 80% of our patients presenting with abdominal pain. And usually we attribute this to the severity of the inflammation. And 20 to 50% of our patients will experience ongoing pain despite absence of inflammation and or adequately treated disease. In terms of the clinical impact of pain on our patients, persistent pain despite improvement of inflammation is generally difficult to treat. We have limited pharmacologic therapies, and our general approach to pain is to do more testing. So when your patient complains of pain, that's usually a red flag warning sign and something must be wrong. However, this um, can unnecessarily increase healthcare costs and decrease health-related quality of life of our patients. In terms of the genetics of pain, um, there actually have been candidate genes and single nucleotide polymorphism SNPs um, in those genes that have been implicated in pain variability. So there have actually been twin studies to show that 30 to 60% of variation in chronic pain syndromes is heritable, kind of the background of patients having high pain tolerance, low pain tolerance. And there's actually been plenty of studies more so in animal models. And now there's been uh, research emerging in humans. So the purinergic receptor family is a family of uh, receptors that have been implicated in uh, visceral and um, inflammatory pain. Um, so P2X3 has been implicated in pain in various visceral organs, so it's been identified in the bladder, ureter, gut, and lung. So the specific aim of this study was to identify a differentially expressed gene that contributes to pain burden in children newly diagnosed with IBD. 
So the methods for our study, uh, so the LA study is a pilot study assessing risk factors for abdominal pain in children with inflammatory bowel disease. And somewhere those letters for LA is in that long statement. Um, the design is a prospective longitudinal inception pilot cohort study where we enrolled patients newly diagnosed with IBD ages 8 to 17. Um, and we also enrolled uh, patients who, were, um, who had colonoscopies for reasons other than abdominal pain or diarrhea to serve as our uh, painless control group. Exclusion criteria included prior abdominal surgery unrelated to IBD, inactive gastrointestinal infection at the time of diagnosis, other comorbidities that may contribute to abdominal pain, such as metabolic syndromes, familiar Mediterranean fever, or a pre-existing chronic pain disorder, such as fibromyalgia. So here uh, depicts an overview of our study. So at the initial visit, which is generally at the diagnostic colonoscopy, informed consent was obtained. Um, at the time of colonoscopy, uh, we got three rectal biopsies that were stored in <coughs> RNA later. And then before the colonoscopy over here, uh, survey data was collected. Uh, we had the patients fill out multiple uh, pain and psychosocial measures, but this study will just focus on the pain burden interview that patients completed, and I will explain shortly. At UConn, uh, total RNA was extracted, um, cDNA synthesis was performed, and PCR quantification, um, and this is how we also um, got our gene expression results. With that, we took that information from the survey data and our um, gene expression data and performed a statistical analysis. So for data collection, we collected multiple uh, demographic variables, such as age, sex, IBD type, abdominal pain at presentation, because believe it or not, we do have patients with inflammatory bowel disease who present without pain. We also assessed degree of rectal inflammation at the time of biopsy. So if there was a normal rectal biopsy, they were classified as none. And if they had these other factors, such as mild increase in lamina propria mononuclear cells and scantify neutrophils, they were classified as having mild inflammation. And if chronic active inflammation, dense lamina propria infiltrate, crypt architectural distortion was present, um, present, they would be classified as moderate to severe rectal inflammation. Here is the pain burden interview that we distributed to our patients enrolled in the study. So this is a seven item functional assessment measure with forced answer choices such as none, few, some, many, every. Um, this yields a numeric score and the higher your score, the greater your pain burden. So scores can range from zero to 28 with 28 being um, most severe pain burden. So gene expression analysis was performed using the Quiagen R2 profile, neuropathic and inflammatory pain PCR array. Um, and what this is is a um, uh, PCR that runs gene expression on 84 genes that have been implicated in pain, various types of pain too, neuropathic pain, visceral hypersensitivity, inflammatory pain. Full differences for each gene for each, each IBD participant were normalized to the average expression of that gene within a group of painless controls. And here this is where we compared the gene expression of our painless controls to our, uh, our patients with IBD. In order to test our hypothesis regarding the contribution of purinergic receptor signaling to pain burden in our clinical population, we use a stepwise linear regression to evaluate the contribution of various factors to pain burden measured by the PBI. We also, when comparing means, use independent sample t-tests and analysis was performed in SPSS. 
So here's the demographics for our patient population. Mean age is about 13. 41% uh, of our patients were female, and there was a slight predominance of patients with Crohn's disease over ulcerative colitis. And this is actually fairly consistent with the um, demographics that we see each year in our patient uh, population. Most of our patients had abdominal pain at the time of diagnosis, approximately, so 90% of all, with a slight predominance of patients with ulcerative colitis having pain over Crohn's disease. In terms of degree of rectal lymphomation, just by the basis of, of the disease type, um, no patients um, had mild or to non-inflammation with ulcerative colitis, otherwise they wouldn't have ulcerative colitis, and most had moderate to severe inflammation. And here, actually, the majority of our patients with Crohn's disease um, did not have rectal inflammation, but had uh, inflammation elsewhere on their, on their colonoscopy. So here we wanted to look at if there was any difference in the pain burden reports of, of um, patients with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. Um, and here, even though numerically it looks that patients with ulcerative colitis had higher PBI scores, this result was not statistically significant. In terms of purinergic expression, here, so this study is, you know, our significant result is with P2X3, however, P2X4, 7, and Y1 are also purinergic receptors. And the fact that these actually were not elevated in our patient population is fairly consistent with the literature as these have not been implicated in uh, visceral or inflammatory pain. But here, seeing that the black is our patients who present with pain and the white patients who don't have pain, there is an elevation in P2X3 expression in our patients with pain as focused in the red. And here, in large, are patients with pain or no pain. So numerically, this looks like it's higher. The error bars are not overlapping, but the p-value is not significant. And we deduce that the p-value is not significant because there were only six, uh, only three patients in this population who had no pain, which violated one of the statistical assumptions. So if we had a larger patient population, more patients who had no pain, this may be significant in the future. Finally, uh, this is the um, model of our stepwise linear regression uh, for P2X3 um, and pain burden. So if you look down here, we took into account age, sex, degree of rectal inflammation, and then when we factored out all three and looked at P2X3 expression, the, um, the p-value is significant at 0.016 with an R-squared change of about 18%, which means that P2X3 expression in our patient population may explain 18% of the variability um, in pain. And while to a clinician that may not seem like much in genetics when you have thousands to millions of, of genes, for one gene to explain 18% of your pain variability is fairly significant. So in summary, there is no significant difference in pain burden between patients with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. There is increased P2X3 expression. Uh, increased P2X3 expression may be associated with abdominal pain at diagnosis, and this requires further study in a larger sample. And P2X3 expression explains approximately 20% of the variance in patient-reported pain burden. Our study limitations: we have a small sample size currently. This analysis did not examine psychosocial factors. The PBI does not specifically assess, assess abdominal pain, just pain in general. Not all rectal biopsies were inflamed, as I mentioned in our Crohn's disease population. And this is only analysis at one point in time and is not longitudinal, but that's our plan. So in terms of clinical implications, as I mentioned, P2X3 may be a biomarker for pain and a potential target for novel therapies. 
there have been study in, studies in animal models showing that P2X3 antagonists can treat patients, um, I'm sorry, can treat mice, but hopefully this can be something that can treat patients during flares as well as during times of remission where they are having abdominal pain. And this way we can avoid complications from treatments that can impair bowel function. And hopefully this can facilitate a shift in pain treatment practice from the usage of opioids, opioids to gene-centric therapies. Thank you. Questions? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so there's one that was done in adults that actually did not show a significant difference. However, the p-value was like 0.054 favoring Crohn's disease, which actually anecdotally is what we see in our population, but nothing that actually shows a statistically significant difference yet. Yeah, one more. So the reason why we didn't want to include patients who have pain elsewhere is that those results may confound our, so we wanted to just focus on abdominal pain in general. So focusing at what percentage of patients with IBD may also have IBS. So if patients are filling out their questionnaires and are it's reflecting their fibromyalgia pain, that's not necessarily what we would want to focus on in terms of our study. Okay, great, thank you. Exciting. Hang on, we got Yeah. Oh. Oh, okay. Don't get your check. Yes, right. The check is in the, the check is in the mail, as we say. So, well, congratulations, Vicky. And uh, for those of you who don't know, she will be staying here at Connecticut Children's Medical Center, and, and in a few months, uh, she'll be uh, working for me. Uh, actually, Jeff was sitting back there. Said, "Really, it really is me." Uh, and uh, and so it's wonderful because she was here as a resident, as a fellow, and now as a pediatric gastroenterologist. So, so Dr. Grossi, congratulations. Okay, moving right along, our next uh, speaker is Dr. Katie Cloutier, who's going to tell us about Ranthi's haplotype and severe bronchiolitis in children. disclaimer on this and tell everyone that I worked last night so I apologize if I yawn I have my coffee up here just in case so for those of you that don't know me I'm Katie Clothier I'm one of the third year pediatric residents here at Connecticut Children's and I had the pleasure of working with Kate Sala and Dr. Chris Carroll on this project so I'm going to be presenting our abstract entitled the rate haplotype and the risk of severe bronchiolitis in children so as you know, bronchiolitis is a significant cause of lower respiratory tract infection in infants and young children. Um, while this disease process more severely affects our high-risk patients, such as those with congenital heart disease or those who are born prematurely, uh, many of the patients that become hospitalized have no pre-existing condition, uh, predisposing them to severe disease. At our institution alone, there are about 200 to 300 children admitted every viral bronchiolytic season um, to the medical surgical floors, with about 50 to 100 of those admitted to the ICU. 
So what is RANTI? So that stands for Regulated on Activation Normal T-Cell Expressed and Secreted. And because that's kind of a mouthful, we're just going to stick with RANTIs. Um, it's one of several chemokine genes uh, involved in the immunoregulatory and inflammatory process. Uh, it is generated by macrophages, CD8 T-cells, and epithelial cells involved in the attraction of monocytes, eosinophils, basophils, and memory T lymphocytes. It's associated with sing three single nucleotide polymorphisms, or SNPs, um, and they are characterized as the 28CG403GA uh, and the IN1.1TC. And there have been previous studies that have been correlating the RANTI SNPs and haplotypes with bronchiolitis severity. However, these studies have been limited based on ethnic background or race in the patient populations that have been studied, and they found inconsistent results on SNPs and haplotypes that have been associated with severe bronchiolitis. So the purpose of our study was to determine if there was an increased risk of severe bronchiolitis associated with the Rantis haplotype, specifically in our patient population here in Hartford. There may be a genetic component uh, related to the developing severe illness, and the Rantis gene in particular has been linked to critical illness in certain populations. We hypothesized that there would be an increased risk of severe bronchiolitis requiring ICU admission based on this Rantis haplotype, further speculating that uh, the association of Rantis polymorphisms would not be consistent amongst race. In our single center retrospective case control analysis, we compared the Rantis haplotype between two populations of children, those who had never required ICU uh, or hospitalization, I apologize, um, for a respiratory infection, and those who had been admitted with bronchiolitis requiring mechanical ventilation, our ICU group. The included population also had to be less than two years of age, the mean age under which you would see um, somebody admitted with bronchiolitis, and patients were completely excluded from both groups if they had incomplete Rantis haplotype data. Uh, so what did we find? Um, in our cohort of 184 children, there was an N of 84, about 46% required mechanical ventilation in the ICU secondary to bronchiolitis. As you can see in this chart, there was no significant difference based on gender, race, or ethnicity between our controls or those with severe bronchiolitis. Excuse me. Um, so this is a chart looking at haplotypes based on disposition, with the control being in green and the ICU group being in blue. So if you remember, we said that there were three different single nucleotide polymorphisms, each with the possibility to either be homozygous dominant, heterozygous, or homozygous recessive. So of all of those possible combinations, there were seven different haplotypes in our patient population of the nine possible combinations. Of the seven different haplotypes identified, the most common was this one over here, the 28G403A IN1.1C, and that composed about 62% of our study group um, with an N of 114. When our most common haplotype was further examined in comparison to the remaining haplotypes, there were no significant differences based on gender or ethnicity of children, but there were significantly fewer African-American children with the 28G403A IN1.1 haplotype, 11% compared to the remaining population of the combined 24%. Um, of these 11%, 67% of them required ICU admission. Looking further into our African-American population, 67% um, as you said, were admitted to the ICU with our particular haplotype with severe bronchiolitis. This was significant when compared to the combined 14% admitted to the ICU with other haplotypes. In comparison our, to our data, a single-center Japanese study found that Japanese children with severe bronchiolitis actually had a lower frequency of the same haplotype that we found to be the most common haplotype. Um, so further analysis of these haplotypes would allow for trends in 
between race, ethnicity, or gender, uh, possibly finding links predisposing patients to severe bronchiolitis. So why is this important and why should you care? Um, providers continue to search for etiologies, increasing patients' risk to severe uh, bronchiolitis um, without pre-existing conditions or known risk factors. We don't currently have a great way uh, to predict severity of disease course. The information uh, from further studies performed on a larger scale has the potential to alter, or I'm sorry, has the potential to allow for the development of personalized medicine. <coughs> Uh, the identification and knowledge of haplotype may have the possibility of altering admission rates, um, such as being able to rapidly test for a haplotype, so for example, in your office or in an emergency room, um, and that might help you determine whether or not that patient that's borderline for severity of disease actually requires admission and further monitoring. The limitations of the study include that it was performed at a single center um, with small population and limited risk. So in conclusion, in our cohort, um, our African-American children with the Rantes haplotype 28G403A IN1.1C were significantly more likely to be admitted to the ICU for respiratory failure associated with bronchiolitis. That's it. Question? I have, I'm not sure a question, but <clears throat> maybe a, a comment. Uh, CCR5 is the receptor for Ranthes, I believe. Correct. And I, I don't know that much about it, but I know that there are a lot of polymorphisms for, for the receptor as well. And I, I think it might be important to look at that in terms of That's how it could have some bearing on some of the responses. That's a very good point. Thank you. Okay, the question I would have is, you know, look forward, you know, five or ten years from now, uh, kid that comes into the AD, so you, what would, with your information, what would you propose you do with a kid that had a little bit of a little bit of a little bit of a little bit of a little I mean, I think that's the dream, right? Um, we're in this really exciting time of medicine where things are leaning towards personalized medicine and being able to determine um, your genetic background and how that can affect and tailor your individual therapy. Um, so if further studies are done and uh, there are more conclusive results, because again, we have a smaller patient population that we were able to study, but if you are able to find larger trends based on ethnicity, based on um, gender, if you are able to say conclusively that an African-American child is at an increased risk of developing severe disease, if they present on that day four borderline, might be getting better, might be getting worse, if you know that they have that haplotype, if you have the ability to rapidly test them and have a test that has a short turnaround time, that might change your mind as to whether or not you decide to admit them for observation or send them home. Got a second, don't leave. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, Katie, congratulations, and uh, Katie will be pursuing a critical care fellowship at the University of North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Hopefully we'll get her back here at some point uh, to work with Dr. Carroll in the ICU here. So thank you to her mentors, and congratulations to you. Thank you. Thank you. Very good. Beautiful. Okay, now for our next speaker, uh, Dr. Sarah Shash, Shash, Sashnik, sorry, excuse me, I'll get it right. <laughs>
and evaluate. Yeah, don't quit. Don't quit my day job, right? <laughs> An evaluation of humoral immunodeficiency and IVIG usage in a cohort of patients with DeGeorge syndrome. Tara, please. So I'm actually Sarah Soshnik, so thank you for the introduction. <laughs> um, how do I go ahead and do this? Okay. So I worked with the newly famous Dr. Bennett and Suhina Joseph um, on an evaluation of humoral immunodeficiency and IVAG usage in George syndrome. So DeGeorge is a common uh, syndrome that we see. It's a microdeletion syndrome of the 22nd chromosome, 22Q11.2 location more specifically. And it has a lot of characteristics that specify the syndrome, such as abnormal facial features, congenital heart disease, such as Churchill-Diafolo, palatal abnormalities, more specifically cleft palates, cognitive disabilities, as well as learning disabilities and behavior problems, endocrine abnormalities such as hypocalcemia, secondary to hypoparathyroidism and growth hormone deficiencies, and thymic hypoplasia or aplasia, which usually leads to an immune deficiency secondary to T-cell paucity from the thymic dysfunction. It has been reported that up to 75% of patients with DeGeorge syndrome have some degree of immune deficiency. Cellular immune defects are well known, secondary to this thymic dysfunction and hypoplasia, but humoral immune defects have been noted but haven't really been well described. Prior research has shown that sinopulmonary infections are of high frequency in this population. However, the high frequency of these infections does not correlate with, high, with low T cell counts, suggesting that there are other contributing factors to immune dysfunction in this population. Cases of hypogammaglobulinemia, as well as isolated immunoglobulin deficiencies, varied levels of vaccine responses, and low levels of switch memory B cells have been noted in this population, which support that there might be a humoral component contributing to the, immuno, the humoral immunodeficiency <coughs> in the George. At United States Immunodeficiency Network, or USIDNet, is a national database that was started in 1997 that has over 6,000 participants from medical sites around the country and over 30 states. It incorporates data of any patient with any sort of primary immunodeficiency by these institutions. In 2012, a query of USIDNet on subjects with DeGeorge syndrome did show that up to 6% had some degree of hypogammaglobulinemia and 3% received IVIG. However, in this study, vaccine responses, types and rates of infections, as well as rates of IVIG usage for these lab abnormalities were not studied. IVIG is a known treatment for patients in the population with laboratory evidence of humoral immunodeficiency, but nobody has looked at the use of IVIG in patients with specifically DeGeorge syndrome. The purpose of our study was to evaluate the rates of humoral immunodeficiency and IVIG use in patients with DeGeorge syndrome in the current USIDNet registry and to assess the correlation with prior infections. So we, used a, we did a retrospective cohort study and we analyzed existing registry data from USIDNet. We had included subjects with DeGeorge syndrome or another synonymous name for such as 22Q microdeletion syndrome or velocardiofacial syndrome. The data was collected by registered providers of this database in the aforementioned 30 medical sites and was mostly obtained during their first visit with, a, uh, with an immunologist or an infectious disease specialist. Some data was collected at subsequent visits. We collected data on vaccine titers and IgG levels. All of these were taken prior to ever receiving IVIG if that patient was treated, 
we got either IVIG status, so whether or not they were ever treated, and we have their infectious history prior to initiating IVIG therapy. So <clears throat> we had the age at which these titers were taken. So the normative IgG titers we used if they were out of the 95% confidence interval or two standard deviations below normal levels. We said that pneumococcal titers were adequate if they had seven or greater serotypes protected. And our data was analyzed by descriptive statistics and Fisher's exact tests. Our cohort included 473 subjects with DeGeorge syndrome. They were aged zero to 63 years and the mean was 18 and a half years. Not all of them had complete data, as some demographic data was missing, as well as some titers. And this was due to variability in provider workup or institution data entry. So out of 349 available titers, we found that almost 12.5% had low IgG levels. Out of 259 titers, 9% of tetanus titers were low. Of 229, 10.5% of diphtheria titers were non-protective, and although we had lower sample sizes, we found 30% of Haemophilus influenza type B titers and almost 40% of pneumococcal titers were non-protective. We found that IVIG therapy was used in 6.5% of our cohort compared to 3% in 2012. And of those on IVIG, 50% had at least one low vaccine titer and almost 36% had low IgG levels. Those who subsequently received IVIG compared to the group who never received IVIG were more likely to have had historic, historic episodes of pneumonia, bacterial skin infections, and sepsis, and all of those were significant. So this graph compares the rates of previous infections of subjects by subsequent IVIG status. The x-axis shows the types of infections we evaluated, and the y-axis has the percent of subjects in each population that had a history of these infections. The light blue group is the patients who subsequently received IVIG, and the purple dark blue group is the patients who never received IVIG. So as you can see, those who did end up getting treated with IVIG had a history that was significantly larger for bacterial pneumonias, bacterial skin and soft tissue infections, and bacterial GU infections than those who never went on to receive IgG, IVIG. This graph shows the history of episodes of each type of infection per patient by subsequent IVIG status. And this accounts for patients who had more than one episode of specific infections. Again, our groups are the same. So the light blue group are those who ended up receiving subsequent IVIG versus the dark blue purple group, patients never were treated. So per patient, we found that subjects who received IVIG had a history of over twice the amount of pneumonias than the group who did not receive IVIG. And the IVIG group also had over twice the amount of viral infections per patient than the non-IVIG group, suggesting that they possibly had a combined immunodeficiency. So this table depicts the percent of patients with low titers that received IgG, I'm sorry, that received IVIG. So only 18% of patients with low IgG titers and 39% of patients who had at least one inadequate or non-protective vaccine titer received IVIG, showing that the majority of our patients remained untreated who did have laboratory evidence of a humoral immunodeficiency. So humoral immune defects in our cohort were more common than previously described in the George patients in the USIDNet database. However, many of our patients with DeGeorge syndrome do not undergo laboratory testing for IgG levels and vaccine titers, as many providers are not likely aware of the association of DeGeorge syndrome and humoral immunodeficiency. Since prior evaluations, our trends do demonstrate that IVIG use increased over the past five years in the present cohort, suggesting increased awareness of the need for treatment. However, our population still demonstrated a significant deficit between those who have a humoral immunodeficiency and those being treated for it, suggesting that there's still a pretty significant gap in knowledge in this condition. 
IVIG was more commonly used in patients with DeGeorge who had a history of frequent or serious bacterial infections, but many patients with inadequate vaccine titers or low immunoglobulin levels remained untreated. So this suggests that IVIG was used for prophylaxis for future infections in those that had a history of severe or frequent infections, but not necessarily those who had laboratory data to support it. So suggesting that if we were possibly able to evaluate these kids at an earlier age and treated them, they might have a chance of decreasing the risk of um, severe or frequent infections. The limitations of our study was that it was retrospective, so we were limited to the data available to us for analysis. We did have some lacking longitudinal data, so we weren't really able to see um, the association of how IVIG decreased the infections in the subjects, which would need to be future studied. We only used one registry, but it was a very large national registry, and we had a pretty big cohort of patients with the George syndrome, and the um, diversity of the actual registry is published, and it does have a lot of, of variability in demographics. Um, an incomplete data registry for us, we weren't able to incorporate data um, that we didn't have regarding missed titers, as well as um, if people weren't reporting their infections. So in conclusion, the study demonstrated that humoral immune deficiencies were more common among patients with DeGeorge than previously reported in USIDNet, as evidenced by rates of low IgG levels and non-protective vaccine titers. IVIG was more commonly used in patients with DeGeorge who demonstrated frequent or severe infections, rather than in those with laboratory abnormalities suggestive of humoral immune deficiency. So our findings do support the need for a prospective randomized control trial evaluating the efficacy of IVIG therapy in the DeGeorge population and those with documented laboratory abnormalities suggestive of a humoral immune deficiency and in those with high rates of frequent or serious bacterial infections. Thanks. Questions? Historically, again, we know that thymic hypoplasia is part of the syndrome, and it does affect T-cell counts. If you have low T-cell counts, they do act, interact with the B-cells that help make memory B-cells and then antibodies to specific infections. So if they're unable to amount that response, they might have repeated bacterial infections, um, which could actually go along with combined immunodeficiencies. So if we're seeing that pattern in these patients, and we're actually seeing laboratory evidence of hypogammaglobulinemia, then it would make sense to treat those patients with IVIG. So should it become a standard of care that kids with the George uh, issue put an IVIG at an earlier age than we normally do? 
So I think that our data is too preliminary to say that, but I think we do need, it, it's worth looking into the gap that we found <laughs> that um, to look for more future randomized controls trials, more prospective trials, to see if we can find uh, any evidence for that. Great work. Um, on that note, I, I was just wondering if, if there was any data on the uh, degree of T cell deficit impacting the IgG levels. So could, could you predict um, who may be so we actually do have that data. I have data of T cell, B cell, and everything counts, but we haven't analyzed it yet, so that's one of the next steps that we want to look forward to. I just want to make, besides the fact that it's a great presentation, is that it really illustrates how much, it, there are a lot in many different fields now, there are these very large databases, and it really illustrates how much one can glean out of these databases, and information uh, and papers and I suspect potential prospective studies. So I, I think it's a really good model from that standpoint. Thank you. Okay, that's great. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you give her her thing. You too. She can give her So uh, Sarah, congratulations. And uh, the good news is she's uh, only a second year, so she'll be staying here for another year in the residency program, and uh, that's great for us. So we're very lucky, and we can finish the study new. Maybe infectious disease fellow. We never know. Maybe. Congratulations, and there's up there in the picture. Take it again. Okay, thank you. Okay, and uh, to use the cliched, last but not least, uh, Catherine Kassmeyer. Did I pronounce it correctly? Yeah. Good. Okay, so I'm three for four. Uh, is going to talk to us about hypothermia, sinus sepsis, and young infants in the ED. With a question mark at the end, as you say. Thank you for having me. As he said, my name is Kate Kazmaier. I'm a fellow in the emergency department, third year fellow. So, um, I have nothing to disclose. And so some background on our study on the role of hypothermia as a sign of infection in infants. Um, we know that the diagnosis of sepsis in infants can be challenging, in particular because the symptoms are often nonspecific. Hypothermia can be one of these signs, a uh, presenting sign of sepsis. However, the prevalence of sepsis among infants with hypothermia um, has not been well studied, particularly in the emergency department. And so that was this, the question that we set out to answer. Um, should hypothermia in a young infant prompt evaluation for sepsis? And is hypothermia a reliable indicator of sepsis, particularly in the absence of any other signs or symptoms that might point towards infection? Um, so to answer this question, our objectives were to determine the prevalence of serious infection in hypothermic infants aged 60 days or younger in the emergency department, uh, to compare the prevalence of infection among infants with varying degrees of hypothermia, and finally to evaluate the clinical features of hypothermic infants uh, who were found to have serious infection. This was a retrospective study that we conducted in our emergency department over a two and a half year period. 
We included all infants uh, aged 60 days or younger who are seen in the emergency department for any reason who had a temperature taken. And we excluded infants who had evaluation for infection that was initiated at an outside emergency department prior to transfer. The, uh, these are the temperature categories that we used. We used the World Health Organization's definition of hypothermia, which is less than 36.5 degrees Celsius, with mild hypothermia being from 36 to 36.4 degrees Celsius, and moderate to severe hypothermia less than 36 degrees. Uh, normothermia was defined as 36.5 to 37.9, and fever is greater than or equal to 38 degrees Celsius. For the hypothermic temperatures, we only included temperatures that were taken rectally. Um, and to classify the degree of hypothermia, we used the lowest temperature during the emergency department visit. And we used all of the temperatures that were taken during the emergency department stay. And so there were a few infants that had both a hypothermic temperature and a febrile temperature at some point during the visit. And we included these infants in both groups. Our primary outcome was the presence of serious infection, which we defined a priori as serious bacterial infections, including urinary tract infection, bacteremia, bacterial meningitis, <coughs> pneumonia, and included herpes simplex virus as well. And the reason that we chose to include this in addition to the serious bacterial infections um, is that the presenting signs and symptoms can be similar to bacterial infections. And like these serious bacterial infections, there's significant morbidity and mortality with the HSV infection in infants, and there is a specific treatment for it. Also, previous studies have shown that hypothermia is common on presentation of uh, HSV in infants. And not all of the infants that we studied had all of the gold standard tests for these, which was the cultures. Um, and so we reviewed charts for return visits, and we considered <coughs> infants negative for serious infection if there was no infection identified in the following seven days. And we compared prevalence using Fisher's exact test. Moving on to results, we identified 322 infants with hypothermia during the study period. The mean age was 19 days, 49% uh, were male, the temperature range, the mean temperature was 36.1 degrees, degrees Celsius, with the lowest temperature being 32 degrees Celsius. And the gestational age, the mean was 38 weeks, with a range from 30 to 42 weeks. This chart shows the age distribution of the infants with hypothermia, normothermia, and fever, with age on the y-axis. And as you can, and the uh, lines of the box plots represent the 25th, 50th, and 75th percentiles. And as you can see, the hypothermic infants were significantly younger than normothermic and febrile infants, uh, with half of the infants being less than two weeks of age. Uh, this flow chart, uh, chart shows the overall uh, population that we studied. So uh, for infants aged 60 days and younger, there were uh, almost 4,000 visits during our study period to the emergency department. Uh, of these, 29 were excluded because of missing temperature data and of the remaining infants, 334 had fever and 486 had hypothermia. So hypothermia was actually more common than fever in this population. Uh, of the febrile infants, 12 were excluded because they had cultures taken prior to transfer. And the hypothermic infants, 132 were excluded because the initial uh, hypothermic temperature was not rectal. Um, and so that left a, a group of 351 hypothermic infants. And of these, 280, so most of them had mild hypothermia, and 70 of them had moderate to severe hypothermia. 
Um, so among those final two study groups, the fever and hypothermia, the prevalence of serious infection was 2% uh, in hypothermic infants, which was seven cases. Uh, compared to in febrile infants, the prevalence was 15.5%. And so as you can imagine from these numbers, this was a statistically significant difference uh, with a lower rate of infection in the hypothermic infants. And then moving on to the severity of hypothermia, uh, among infants with mild hypothermia, uh, the prevalence of serious infection was 1.8%, and infants with more severe, uh, the moderate to severe hypothermia, the prevalence was 2.9%. Um, however, this was not a significant difference, and unfortunately our study wasn't powered to detect a small difference between these groups. Uh, this table shows the serious infections that we did identify. There were seven cases in hypothermic infants, and so we'll go through this a little bit. Um, the ages really ranged throughout the zero to 60 day age range that we studied. Um, most of the inf infants were full term, but two of them were premature. The temperatures of three of the infants had moderate hypothermia, and the remaining four had mild hypothermia. And one of the interesting findings was that uh, a number of the infants, five infants, had fever in addition to hypothermia. So they were going back and forth between fever and hypothermia, um, either before presentation or even during the ER visit. And these were all full-term infants uh, with serious bacterial infections. And then the infants that didn't have fever um, did have other symptoms that uh, could have been suggestive of a possible infection. And these included uh, lethargy, poor feeding, and apnea. Um, and I think it was interesting to note that both of the premature infants had apnea, um, both witnessed in the emergency department as well. And prior studies have, have actually shown this. Um, there have been some studies in the NICU on late onset sepsis in premature infants. And uh, some of the most common presenting signs have been found to be hypothermia and apnea, which is what, although we only have two cases, this is what we saw as well. And the final column shows the infections that were identified. Five of them were urinary tract infections. Two infants had HSV infection, uh, with one of them being disseminated infection along with bacteremia. And one of them was skin eye mucous membrane HSV. And one other interesting um, thing to note was that the white blood cell counts were normal in all but one of the patients as well. So in summary, the infants with serious infection had other clinical features or signs that were concerning for infection, including apnea, lethargy, poor feeding, uh, vesicular rash in the case of HSV, and fever. And all of the full-term infants with serious bacterial infections did have fever, which we know is a common presenting sign of, of sepsis in infants. Um, our study does have some limitations. It was a retrospective study, so uh, this limited uh, some of the data that we had, particularly on some of the uh, signs and symptoms. Um, and we don't have complete follow-up for all of the infants. We do have most of the in infants returned to our institution at some point, but it's possible that we lost some infants to follow-up and, and therefore possible that we had missed a serious infection. And with it being at a single site, and as you know, we're a, a you know, referral center, um, we had a relatively high prevalence of infections among the febrile infants. And so these results may not be applicable to other settings and other populations. And finally, the small number of infants that we found that had serious infection in the hypothermic group uh, limits the conclusions that we can draw, um, and in particular, uh, what features may be um, more predictive of 
predictive of infection in addition to hypothermia. And this is certainly an area of potential future study for a, a larger study to look at uh, what other clinical features in addition to hypothermia can help identify infants with sepsis. So in conclusion, the prevalence of serious infection in hypothermic young infants in the emergency department was low. And in particular, it was significantly lower than in febrile infants. And so a, a similar approach to febrile infants and testing all hypothermic infants for infection um, is, is not likely to be uh, helpful or necessary. However, um, in infants uh, with other signs of infection, serious infection is definitely possible. Um, however, serious infection is unlikely in, in infants with isolated hypothermia. And I'd like to acknowledge